I'm turning now to the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And our subject is the true nature of saving faith. Now, customarily in these evening services, we look at a great variety of scripture passages to see the arguments that God has given to our souls to turn to him and to seek him and find him and to see the work of Christ and how he's made redemption possible and what he does and to see examples of people who are drawn to Christ and find him all from the pages of the word. And I felt this evening that I'd like to home on just one matter and that is saving faith faith and what it is and what it means we have a problem with the word faith and the problem is that it's come to be used in society in general in the world in a quite different sense than that from that which is meant in the scripture it has a particular meaning in the word of God based on the origin of the word based on the Greek term which is used and translated faith based on the context but in modern society it's changed so if we speak about faith people very often don't know what we mean and I remember some time ago hearing a, uh, an atheist speaker speaking about faith with great contempt and division. And he said, these Christians, they say, a thing is true if you have faith. That's not what we say. It's not what the Bible says. His notion of faith is that it is some determination you summon up, some quality you produce in you, some force which insists that something is true. I believe in that. I have faith in that. I have faith in that. Whether you can absolutely prove it or not is beside the point. You choose to exercise by an act of will faith. That's not what the Bible means by faith. It's not what the original word means at all. Faith is not a quality in the Bible. It's not something you possess. I mean, obvious examples. You go to open a door. That's an act which comes from you and you perform it by your own strength. Simple thing to do. But you choose to stretch for out your hand and grasp the handle or lever and turn it and then push or whatever, pull the door, whichever way it swings. If it's stiff and difficult, you exert some force and you have done it. It's your act. And people who don't understand the biblical word faith, they think it's like that. It's an act which is you. 
and your strength and capacity to believe. So you make yourself accept something. And so the atheist will say, but you can't prove these things that you believe in. You can't absolutely prove them. And he thinks the Christian answers, doesn't matter about that, I have faith. As though faith makes them true. Because you have the force of some ability to believe something that you can't actually prove and be sure of, that makes it true. That is not the way faith is used in the Bible. It's not the same thing. And that's what we shall be considering this evening. The faith of a Christian requires evidence. You trust something. That's what the word essentially means. You trust something because you have been informed about it. In other words, you've gathered the evidence. You've, you are persuaded that it's true. And the Greek word, which is translated faith in our Bibles, comes from that, to be persuaded, to be convinced and persuaded. You are persuaded first, and then you trust it. So faith in the Bible is an act that is based upon some kind of evidence, something that causes you to say, this is true. You have a basis for trusting. And the word faith means because you're persuaded and you're convinced by the evidence put before you, you trust it. So it's not you just out of the blue choosing to think something is true and putting your willpower behind that. It's your response to evidence. Before I come to the text, the chief evidence that you have is the phenomenon of the Bible. You didn't take it seriously. You never believed it. You never understood it. That was so with me. It's so with so many of us who come to the Lord. But then you read it or somebody explained it to you or preached it to you by one means or another, either for yourself or from another person, you became acquainted with some of the things in the Bible. And at first, maybe, you paid no attention. But then, something began to rivet your attention. I didn't know this kind of material was here, you said to yourself. I never saw it this way. I didn't know what it was saying. What was it saying? Well, it was describing man. Men and women. It was describing society, describing the world as lost in sin. It was describing all the components of sin and the way we behave. It was describing human nature. And the more you saw it, you said, that's true. That's true. That's exactly what I see. That is an exact picture of the reality. And then you listen to what comes to you from this present society, and people are saying to you, oh no, men and women are good at heart. 
There's real goodness at the heart of everyone. We don't believe in depravity. We don't believe in sin. We don't believe we're contaminated by this force called sin. We don't accept that. And you come more and more to see that is utterly unrealistic. That view is against all the evidence. It's against the evidence of society. It's the, against the evidence in me. That's what you say to yourself. This Bible has got it right. It presents itself as a word from God. And it's described me. And it's described everyone. Then you read it describes God. And you see, you say to yourself, I've never heard God described like that. In terms of his infinite and eternal attributes and his power and his self-sufficiency and his unchanging nature and his holiness and yet his loving kindness and his sovereignty and all these attributes of God. Nobody ever told me that, you say. I see now. If there is a God, that is exactly what must be true, what he must be like. That makes sense. Then you read about Christ, and you read extraordinary things. You come to be aware of all the prophecies of him. Right through the centuries of the Old Testament, Christ prophesied what he would be like, where he would come from, what he would do, how he would live, his nature, his character, his work. Dozens of prophecies. And nobody else in the whole of human history has ever been prophesied. And his life with dazzling accuracy. And you say, nobody told me this, but this is divine. There is no explanation for this. It is the inspired word of God. Then you read about the work of Christ and how he came to suffer and die for sinners and the explanation, because God is so holy, he must judge and punish sin and get rid of it from his moral universe and punish all sinners and yet you read about his loving kindness. How is God going to exercise his loving kindness and his mercy and his justice at the same time? And you read the solution to the problem, the great problem of the universe, that Christ, who is the second person of the Godhead, came into this world to suffer our punishment if we believe in him on our behalf so that God could show mercy and loving kindness and justice and fulfill his mighty attributes. These are wonderful things. And as you read, and I could tell you so many more things, you become convinced and persuaded and it constitutes evidence because this is true. This has the ring of truth. This is a system that works. This is true to my observation of what I see around me and in myself. And on the grounds and the basis 
of all that information and evidence because it convinces you in your heart you come to God and you say to Christ be my saviour cleanse me from all sin give me a new life your faith wasn't a force within you it was the simple act of taking hold of Christ of embracing him and calling to him for help and for salvation. Not some noble quality act of force of belief. You were persuaded by the evidence and you cried out to him and reached out to him and fell before him. That's the way to look at it. That is faith in the Bible. Look at this great verse here in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him. That's a special word translated received. It comes from a Greek root which means take hold of. And you could translate it that way. As many as took hold of him for rescue, for forgiveness, for new life. As many as grasped upon him. It's a different word from that used in the previous verse. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The Greek there is his own did not take him near. In other words, they didn't acknowledge him. But for those who took hold of him for rescue and for life, to them gave he power, capability, that's the meaning of the word translated power. Ability or capability. To them gave he capability. How? He caused them, the next verse will say, to be born anew. And we'll look at that. He gave he power to become the sons of God. I missed a word. To them gave he power. Gave he as a gift. These people who come to Christ and take hold of him and are given the capability of being the sons of God are not given it as a reward for anything. They didn't deserve anything. They never earned anything. Gave he. And the word gave is from gift. Something free, which cannot possibly be earned. We'll talk about that. Gave he power, capability, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe, trust, on his name. Why on his name? Well, his name is Jesus. And Jesus means saviour. So it means even to them that believe he is saviour. He alone is the saviour sent from God. But then verse 13. These people who are going to be rescued and saved, which were born, there it is, a new 
birth. The Lord Jesus Christ, in just two chapters' time, will be telling a man named Nicodemus, he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. God calls this great change, being made a Christian by God, a new birth. We learn from that. The first thing about a birth is that you don't do it to yourself. You're born a helpless babe without any exceptions. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't affect your birth. You were not your own midwife. You were not your own mother. The first thing you learn about birth is that it happens to you. And you must learn that about conversion. I get the evidence that this is a fallen world and I'm a sinner and I need a saviour. I see the truthfulness of the word of God. It alone speaks truly and explains our present predicament and our needs and tells me about Christ. I come to Christ. I take hold of him. That's an easy thing to do for rescue. Like somebody in a boat that is sinking and the rescuing vessel comes alongside and the rescuer reaches out and you take hold of him. No merit in that, no credit in that. I take hold of Christ in repentance and asking for salvation and life. And I am born anew. He does it to me. He causes me to be changed. Born again. A new father. The living God. New faculties. Spiritual faculties. I can now understand spiritual things. And read my Bible. And it's marvellous. New faculties. I have love in my heart for God. I never had it before. I didn't want it. I resisted him. I wouldn't listen to anyone who told me about him. Now I need him and I have love for him in my heart. New faculties, new senses. I sense him. Not, his, not by touch, not by sound, but by the realization that I am his and he is mine. I'm new in every way. The apostle says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, which means creation. He's created anew, a new birth. Nicodemus, that leading Jew, when Christ told him this, was so amazed, he said, come, come. Can a person enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? He didn't see it, not at first. He saw it later on, and he was born again, converted to Christ, and came to know him, which were born not of blood. It's not to do with race. The Jews of old fell into the mistake of thinking that they were accepted by God simply because of the race into which they were born. No, it isn't by blood, by race, by birth. Because you've got a Christian father or a Christian mother 
therefore I'm a Christian. No, it isn't by blood. You have to come to God for yourself, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It wasn't by your choosing. As from today, I will be a Christian, the will of the flesh. No, it's because you take hold of Christ, repent of your sin, plead to him for life, and he does it. He causes you to be born again. Nor of the will of man. Some people think they can go to some kind of priest, and he will utter some words, and that will make them accepted by God. No, no, no man can do it. Only God can convert. But of God. So the two verses together, as many as received him, took hold of him, to them gave he, as a free gift, power, capability, to become the sons of God, children of God, even to them that believe, trust, on his name, which is Jesus, meaning Saviour, which were born a new birth, a new life, a new start, a new family, you're a Christian, a new home, ultimately in heaven, not of blood, not by descent, not of the will of the flesh, your own determination, I remember a young lady some years ago and uh, she uh, wanted to become a Christian. And this young lady had been so successful in everything she'd ever set out to do. Every honour she wanted, she won it. Every job she wanted, she got it. Every circle of people she wanted to move among or gain access to, she somehow got in. She was almost success personified. She could accomplish. She had that kind of personality and strength. But then she came to realize she was a sinner who needed forgiveness and needed new life, needed to be a Christian. And so she began to seek, and she couldn't find. And she went on her knees night after night, praying that God would receive her and forgive her and accept her. And nothing happened. And she had some friends who'd found Christ, and they would tell her of their experience, but it couldn't happen to her until she almost despaired. And then it came home to her. The Lord was keeping her waiting at the door of salvation until she really knew she could not do it for herself. This is one thing she could not accomplish by any deserving or any merit or any power or strength in her. It had to be God alone who would save her and give her assurance that she was saved and she belonged to him. And when that really came home to her, then her prayers were answered. 
which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I want to turn you to another passage of scripture just for the last few moments, and it's the letter to the Romans and chapter 3. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. And we just very quickly look at one or two verses here. Look at verse 23. And here is the Apostle Paul confirming all these things. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are sinners. I'm not a sinner, you say. I'm not as bad as some people. Scripture says you are. Scripture says everyone is a liar. Everyone is proud. Everyone is selfish in some degree. Everyone has sin. You may be unclean in some ways. You've offended against God. You've broken his law. It's not only what you do. It's your state. You sin because it's what you are. We lie because we're liars. We do mean and selfish things because we are mean and selfish. It's in us. For all have sinned and come short, a million miles short of the glory and the holiness of Almighty God. Verse 24, being justified freely. Being justified freely, dear friends. These are wonderful words. Justified. It's like a court decision. Declared righteous by God. To come to God, he declares you righteous. It's a declaration made in heaven about you. How can it be made? I'm not righteous because I believed in Christ and I've repented of my sin and Christ has taken my sin away. He suffered and died long ago for all who would believe in him and come to him. He bore all the sin they'd ever committed in their entire life and took the punishment, the punishment which should have lasted forever was compressed into the space of six hours and unleashed upon his holy soul. The God who became man, the God-man, and in indescribable agony, not only a body, but many, many times more of his soul, he bore away the punishment of all who come to him, being declared righteous, freely, without cost, without payment, because I cannot pay anything. By his grace, wonderful word, his favor, unearned and undeserved, it means. Through the redemption, that word redemption, do you know what it means? Redemption means a ransom price paid. A ransom price? 
What has that got to do with it? Don't you see when Christ died on Calvary, it can be described in this way, it was almost as though he paid a ransom to the Father to secure our freedom. Just as when a slave was rescued by somebody, that person would pay a ransom price to pay that person who dreadfully owned that slave the value of the slave so that the slave could go free. So Christ, as it were, by dying in our place, paid the ransom price that secured our freedom. Through the redemption, the ransom price that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth. Look at this. It's, it's a long word. It's a word not used today. So nobody knows, or very few people know the meaning. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. A propitiation, dear friends. That is a sacrifice that pays the price. A sacrifice instead of that covers the sin. It's similar in a way to redemption, but it's much fuller. Through propitiation, through faith in his blood, belief in his blood, what he did when he suffered and died, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Our time is up. But the Apostle Paul is teaching exactly the same thing. And I close by just a very brief story. If I go back to Romans 1 and verse 17, we read these words, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Salvation has to be by faith. Nothing else will do. It has to be by persuasion. You are convinced by the evidence that the Bible is true. It has the perfect description of us, the perfect description of you and me and our need, the perfect plan of salvation, the ring of truth. You are persuaded by it. And therefore you trust it, and you take hold of Christ. Salvation must be that way, because it cannot be earned. We are sinners. We cannot do anything to get rid of the sin on our past record. And we cannot earn the favor of God by utter absolute holiness of life. We have a great debt behind us, an impossible mounting before us because we are alienated from God and under his judgment. So salvation must be by faith alone, not by works, not by effort, not by payment, not by priest, 
not by ceremony, not by anything like that. It must be by trusting that Christ has provided salvation for us and will give it to us freely if we take hold of him and repent of our sin. Martin Luther is a case in point. You know, when he was 20 years of age, had a very, very strict upbringing. He was very religious. He was very conscious of the holiness of God and his own sinfulness. And he was burdened by the thought, if he died, he would perish eternally under the judgment of God. Well, he'd got all that right. But he didn't know what to do about it. At 20, he got caught up in a thunderstorm, a violent thunderstorm with tremendous sheets of lightning coming down. And the lightning struck the ground a few feet in front of him. And he was terrified. And he prayed, but not to God. He prayed to St. Anne. That's no good. But he prayed to her and he said, Sanan, if you rescue me and I survive, I will become a monk. He did survive. And he became a monk. And he trained in the monastery. But it didn't get him forgiveness of sin. He took this very seriously. At one point when he was quite advanced on his course and qualified and so on. His confessor was a monastic head called von Staupitz. And he would go to him day after day confessing his sins. Little sins, tiny sins, small sins, dozens of sins. And von Staupitz said to him one day, please don't come back until you've got something big to confess. He was very earnest. Then he became a teacher in the University of Wittenberg. And he gained his doctorate and became at length a professor, the youngest professor in the university. And he was 32 and he'd been teaching the Psalms. And by reading the Psalms, he began to understand the grace of God that God, when he blesses people, does it freely. But that's all he understood until he found himself reading Paul's letter to the Romans and he had to teach it to his theological classes. And he was wrestling with it himself. What does it mean? The just shall live by faith. What does it mean? the righteousness of God. What is all this meaning? And he realized this is about the righteousness which God imputes to us and credits us with. It's Christ's righteousness. If we believe in him, that he suffered and died for sinners, and we reach out to him, his righteousness is imputed to our record. 
because our record was cancelled by his death on Calvary for us. So he takes our sin and takes the punishment and he gives us his righteousness. Not literally, it's imputed to us. God chooses to look upon us as though we had never sinned and make us his children and bless us. And Luther understood the just shall live by faith. And he pushed back his chair and he was staggered. All my life I thought I must earn it, I must deserve it, I must screw up my faculties and insist on believing it by force. But now I see it's a matter of taking hold of Christ and trusting in him. He bears away the sin and makes me, imputes to me, credits me with righteousness and I can go to heaven. Oh, he said, this was like being born again. When he was in his late 40s, he looks back at his experience and he writes, it was like going through open doors into paradise. He saw the truth of the gospel. May you see it, what faith is, what it means. May you see the evidence. May it move you to lay hold on Christ as Saviour. Let's pray. Lord, look upon us all, intransigent by nature, resistant and unwilling, preferring our sinful lives and ourselves, and nothing of thee, nothing of heaven, nothing of the Spirit. Oh, Lord, help us. Show these things to us. Convince us, persuade us, and bring us to Christ to lay hold on him. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.